source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Our scripture reading is Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Let us hear the word of God. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, open up our hearts to receive your word. Guide everything that is said. Guide our very hearts, Lord, as we look to you. Look to your word. Try to examine and see what did you intend to say to us here. How can it affect our lives today? How can it affect the way we deal with our brothers and sisters, uh, even within our own families? Lord, how can it affect how we come to you. We pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts to receive your truth. Open up our eyes. Make us willing, Lord. Make us humble before your glorious goodness and majesty. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The 19th century preacher, J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican, wrote this, that we are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. And so, this parable, though it begins in this way that may cause some of us to exclude ourselves, um, we need to see that It's dealing with what is the root of every human being, what is the root of all of our problem before God. And I pray that we all will be humbled by it and drawn all the more, as we've entitled this, to come with nothing in our hands to God. And by this title, as we just sang, it means to bring nothing to commend ourselves Nothing of our own righteousness, nothing that we think would make us step a little bit closer to God than other people 
Anything that would turn God toward us and say, you are good enough, but we come absolutely empty-handed. And part of that is simply recognizing how empty-handed we are. That's the whole issue. We all have the disease of sin. The point is, how do we, how much do we recognize it? Do we even see it? And unless we have some awareness of it, how could we ever begin to value the forgiveness of God? How could we begin to value the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who died in our place? Now, you have a handout. I trust most of you have this. Uh, On the front of this, the the top of the page should read, The Flow of the Parable. We're going to begin here and then turn over to the inner structure and and go down through that structure as we uh, look at this parable in some detail. But the basic flow of the parable is laid out here. Uh, You'll notice this introduction and the conclusion. Uh, There's a, a basic statement framing it on both sides, but in the middle is the parable itself. And you'll notice there, there's a beginning where they both go up and there's an ending where they both come down. That's kind of the frame of the parable. And as it flows out, as it just uh, comes to us, you have just the Pharisees' manner and the tax collector's manner in prayer. And notice, just on the surface of things, the difference. You can see B and then B prime down there. First, the Pharisee's manner, he stands by himself and prays. Uh, We'll look a little bit more of what that means to stand by himself, but you get the feeling of how flippant he is here, that he's confident in himself, that he's just charging into God's presence in a sense. Standing by himself, he prays. And notice the contrast then with the tax collector standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Look at the difference in the manner of these two men. One rather casual in the presence of God. One rather unemotional, really, in a sense, before God. Just standing and praying. The other one, completely broken and full of emotion. Already, the passage begins to examine us. Which one kind of character? Are you basically flippant, casual, unemotional as you approach God? Or are you more fundamentally gripped in awe, broken before Him. And then notice the difference in the two C's, C and C prime, the two prayers. The prayer of the Pharisee goes on and on, doesn't it? Uh, Like a crowing rooster, really, just over and over. You know, you wake up in the morning, you don't want to wake up in the morning, but the rooster next door is just going on and on and on, and that's kind of the feel of this. Begins with, I'm not like other men. The fundamental thing, I'm better. Notice the contrast I'm, of the tax collector. I'm a sinner. Could it be more radical? And the simplicity, the directness, the one, it, everything focuses on this one thing. Lord, have mercy. I'm a sinner. While the Pharisee goes on and on about what he's not and what he is. Both are asking God, both are addressing God, how different are they? You get the flow of uh, both the manner in which they approach God and then the prayer that comes forth. It could not be more different. 
Now, if you'll turn over, this is interesting as you look at the inner structure, and I borrow this from Kenneth Bailey, wrote a book, now it's joined with another of his books, but uh, Through Peasant Eyes. Uh, Bailey, at the time of writing this, had lived in uh, Israel for 20 years, was a scholar teaching there, and he gives a lot of insight into both the literature and the, the cultural setting of the parables. And he points out that this is one of many, as he calls it, a seven stanza parable ballad written in little couplets. Now, you might think, oh, please, not an English lesson. I don't want that. But it's helpful for us to understand the intent of uh, what Luke is getting at. <clears throat> First, you'll notice the word, the, the word righteous in the introduction. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And you'll notice that the parable shoots toward this middle section very often in Hebrew thought, you'll see this in the chapters of the Old Testament. The most important part is not at the beginning or the end of the chapter. It's right smack dab in the middle. And everything goes to that middle and then everything flows away from that middle. It's almost like the mountaintop and then it all rolls off. Uh, everything leads up to that and everything flows away from that. That's what we have here. And so this righteousness is finally fully laid out as he sets forth his righteousness. I fast, I pay tithes of all that I get. So there's a kind of a race to this point and then a turnaround and a race to the shattering conclusion, the startling reversal that it is not this man that went forth righteous. In fact, if you get down to that A prime, that word justified is the same word uh, same basic root word uh, as they were righteous. You could read it. Uh, he came away among the righteous, you see. So here's a man trusting in himself that he is righteous. And after this radical turnaround, this paradox, Jesus says, no, this is the man that was among the righteous. The very one who was looked down upon by this other man. The man that thought he was the righteous and disdained and humiliated the, the, the uh, tax collector. Wow, what a turnaround. Here's the man that is declared righteous. He's the one counted as belonging to God, accepted in God's favor, rather than the other who thought himself to be that man. So this is a, a shattering uh, parable. And the turnaround is right after his self-righteousness, then we get the real picture of the tax collector. And you'll notice there are key words that put one, the C with the other C. For instance, in, in the first C, he's talking about the tax collector. And then in the turnaround, here's the real person of the tax collector. He was disdained. There was a prejudice against him, a hatred against him. Uh, the tax collector is the extortioner, the unjust, as we'll see, this tax collector. But then the turnaround, but the tax collector was a pious, humble, broken man, in fact. See, that's the feel. You think that this man is, is what he, the, the Pharisee thinks him to be. Oh, no, he's quite a different man than the Pharisee judges him to be. Is really a, a holy man, a man given up helplessly to the grace of God. And then in the two B's, you see the greater contrast. The Pharisee prays, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. And the tax collector, B, 
be merciful to me, a sinner. And an interesting little turn. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A, the Pharisee is put first, then the tax collector. And in the end, there's even a literary statement about he who exalts himself will be humble because first is now the tax collector and then the Pharisee. So it is a beautiful, uh, beautifully laid out uh, parable, uh, a rich uh, example of of literature that uh, is full of of meaning and application for us. Now, let's look more closely at uh, some of the things that would open up more of the meaning to us. In the idea of two men going up to the temple to pray, we tend to think when we say, I'm going to church to pray... Most of us would think, oh, you're talking about during the week, you're going to go up to the church and sit and pray by yourself. We, we just naturally think that they were praying by themselves in this place. But that a Middle Easterner would always assume someone is talking about public worship when they say, go up to pray. That was the standard way that even a a Muslim would say, I'm going to the mosque to pray, or a a Christian, I'm going to the church to pray. That's just the way they refer to it. And you can see back in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah is making atonement, a, a part of the atonement sacrifice of that day, he is then offering the incense after the sacrifice is made. And at that point, we read that the multitude of people were praying outside. So this is very likely to be the regular time of sacrifice. There was a a sacrifice at dawn of a lamb, and then in the evening, considered the evening at 3 o'clock, the ninth hour. Oh, thank you. I'm so grossing everybody out. Please, get him some water. Thank you. And so, the way it... The the lamb would be slaughtered, and you can imagine these people coming in to worship. The lamb is slaughtered. It's cut into pieces. Then the priest goes in to offer up incense. Incense was the sign of the prayers of the people offered up to God. And at the time that... He came in and did the incense, then people would offer up their personal prayers to God. You even read in the uh, uh, Jewish historical book, Judith, that those who weren't at the temple at the time of the incense would pray uh, at that time. So it was considered the time of prayer. Uh, Either you're there at the time uh, at the temple or even you're away from it. The time uh, of incense is the time of prayer. So, this adds some color to the picture because they weren't just by themselves. They were in this group of people and it's very likely that he was standing off from these people. The uh, Pharisee, as it says here in verse 11, standing by himself, he prayed. Now, some translations don't have this, but this seems to be the very best uh, text and, and the meaning of the passage. Uh, standing by himself prayed. Now, the Pharisees had to be careful about uncleanness. And there are many things that would make you unclean. And one of the things that would make you unclean is if you brushed the clothes of someone who was not uh, of the harem or 
Habarim, the associates. People were divided into the associates, those who strictly kept the law, and then uh, what were called the Ham uh, Ha'aretz, the people of the land. So you had the associates and the people of the land, kind of like a law firm. Uh-huh. <clears throat> anyway, but um, you couldn't rub shoulders with the people of the land. You couldn't let your clothes brush up against them or you would be considered unclean. And so he's definitely standing apart from the rest of the worshipers, particularly as he sees this uh, tax collector there. So standing aloof, standing apart. There's even reference in uh, Jewish writings criticizing that kind of approach from the leaders. Uh, the great teacher Hillel says, Do not keep aloof from the congregation and trust not in yourself until the day of your death and do not judge your fellow. Wow, that's all these things. He's, he's proclaiming that you not stand apart and judge your fellow in this way. And of course, Jewish practice was to pray aloud. Always to pray aloud. So the picture is this man basically not so much praying to God, but preaching a sermon to these lesser people around him. Giving them some instruction on how they should live. And, and here's a living example. And you get to see me and hear me and watch me as I go about my religious exercise. Uh, Bailey points this out, that most of us at some point in our worship experience have been obliged to listen to some misguided soul insult his neighbors in a public prayer. And such was happening here. And the one thing missing here, obviously, the one thing that's appalling is that in his thankfulness, there is no request, is there, for the grace of God. There's no petition at all. It's very interesting because sometimes, and I've been guilty of this, uh, we, talk, we, we sometimes are so given to asking, asking, asking that we try to remind ourselves that, look, you've got to praise God and enjoy Him and lift Him up. But the opposite can be true. You can so praise Him that you don't even really pour out your heart before Him and petition Him. And this man had no petitions at all. And it's interesting that true thanksgiving is always accompanied by a feeling of humility and brokenness before God. They always go together. It's the broken. It's the ones humbled by their sin and their littleness and their weakness and their own innate emptiness who most praise and honor God because they're the ones who most offer themselves up to Him, the ones who embrace Him and cling to Him so heartily because they see their need of Him. This exalts Him. This lifts Him up. Our very petitions rightly offered can can cause, can, can show forth His greatness that we see in Him alone are my resources. And so there's no sense of guilt. There's no sense of emptiness. Uh, you could say that this is a successful prayer, right? This guy is successful. We hear a lot about that from pulpits of being successful and thinking of yourself as successful and thinking only positive things about yourself and don't ever allow anybody to cause you to think a negative thing about yourself. And Jesus here is contrasting the success prayer with the broken prayer 
And he's saying in the end that the broken prayer is the one that ends in exhilarated joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. Not the successful prayer. I remember in one situation where I was uh, preaching on the glory of Christ for several months and I was at least caught up and I, I realized that I may have an exalted sense of how good those sermons were, okay? But the, the subject matter was so glorious, just focusing on the glory and the beauty of Christ. And I remember one particular couple, uh, very, very success-oriented, complaining because they didn't have anything that told them how they could do their life better. They wanted to have more success. They wanted to get things straight in their life. Not from a helpless standpoint, because they had everything together. And they wanted to get more together. And you're not giving me those practical how-tos. All I'm hearing about is this, like, Jesus stuff. Now, that's not much of a caricature. And we're infected with that in America where we don't hunger and thirst after the beauty and glory of Jesus. We just want to be successful. We just want things to work out right. And we want a God that's going to help things work out right. Not a God that would cause my affections to be so fixed upon Him that He can do whatever He wants to with me, even if He sends me somewhere and I die for His glory. Come on. Because I'm enthralled with you. A little bit different kind of religion is Christianity. So, this man thanked God, but obviously this ended up simply being self-advertisement, didn't it? It was basically a self-congratulation speech offered not so much to God, but for those around him. And this person is obviously looking for the faults of others. And we read, this, is, this was a piece that Bailey quotes from the 11th century. Ibn al-Salibi, okay? So this is a Middle Eastern writer on this, this text. Uh, it was originally written in Syriac, and I think Tim Bates translated it for me. Um, but he says this, We know that the one who is not a thief and adulterer is not necessarily a good man. See what Abin is saying? The one who's not the thief and not the adulterer is not necessarily a good man. Furthermore, experience demonstrates that the search for the faults and failures of others does the greatest harm of all to the critic himself. Bailey adds this, Thus we see a man here tearing up the fabric of his own spirituality. So, this kind of desperate need to put others down, this kind of desperate need to use success to make you feel superior to others, being blind to its corruption, blind to just how pathetic it is, 
the need to feel superior and better than others. I was in the lunchroom in junior high, seventh grade, and Martha Wise was my kind of girlfriend, and uh, she had done something to upset me, and so I was, she came up behind me as I was eating lunch with my guys at the table, and I was wanting to show off, and I was wanting to put her down in front of them, and I said some little smart aleck thing to her, and she just walked away, and I had my milk carton that I just finished drinking the milk, and so I was like, man, I showed her, you know, and I hit it like this, and it wasn't empty. In fact, the milk just sprayed all over me. And you can believe that junior high guys laughed at me for the whole year over that, you know. <clears throat> so tough, so cool, so full of myself, putting her down, and so pathetic, you know. And that was only done because I was such so insecure, of course, and so weak, and so want to impress people, and so lacking in love or concern or compassion. But that's where we are. And that's where this man really was. Uh, A man that was indeed weak and helpless and broken and so empty, all he had was to try to make himself feel better than other people, that, that he was better than other people. So this is the Pharisee sent before us. And Ryle says this, Never are men's hearts in such hopeless condition as when they are not sensible of their own sins. Never is the heart in a more hopeless condition than when men are not sensible of their own sins. And dear friend, if, if you or I, at some point in our lives, and this, this isn't just a one-time thing we talk about, well, the time I received Christ, and you remember the helplessness that you felt and the brokenness and that you received Him. And many times the Christian life is pictured as, well, I'm all better now. You know, I, I don't need Him in that same way anymore because you know, He fixed me back. But that posture that Jesus is setting forth, this is the posture of those who belong to the kingdom of God. It is the beginning of an everyday approach to God coming just as I am in all of my helplessness, recognizing that, yes, I do belong to Christ. I am found in Christ, but in and of myself, Lord, I continue to be nothing, all of grace. Everything comes from you. And that's our constant approach. And of course, many of us beginning supposedly on this uh, being forgiven, we tend to think, now after that, I'm on my own, and if I fall and if I sin, then it depends on my righteousness. But it's always that, just as I am, I come to Thee. Always coming with nothing in my hand, I come to You, Lord, I have failed, I have sinned, I have said this thing, thought this thing, done this thing. Lord, I come to you as I came that first day in the continuing helplessness depending on your grace in Christ. That's the life of the Christian. Always. Always. And anything else crosses over and we become in one shape or another a Pharisee. Now, then... The tax collector, as we said, here's the turn. Here's the amazing contrast. Uh, He's not what the Pharisee thinks him to be. 
He's actually this broken, humble man. He is actually truly worshiping God. He is actually truly trusting in God. He is acknowledging the mercy and goodness and greatness of God. He's acknowledging the holiness of God so that he is expressing this brokenness to God. And he is, in fact, not feel, feels like he's not worthy to stand with the people of God. And you think of the Apostle Paul saying, I'm the least of all apostles, or in another place, I'm the least of all saints, in another place, I'm the least of all sinners. And so he's, he, he's not thinking at this point of who's wronged him. <laughs> he's not thinking so much of how have I been hurt in my life? And how God's, how's God going to fix it? He's just taken up with one thing. I have sinned against God. And that sounds dark in some ways to us. It sounds like it, sounds like it pushes us over the edge or, or God's not recognizing the hurt that we have. But actually it is the gateway into comfort and true pleasure and delight and joy. It's interesting that the, the posture is to pray with your hands crossed like this. And only women, This, in fact, uh, Ken Bailey says he's only seen one instance of men beating their chests. Generally at funerals, women do this, but men hardly ever. He said there was one Islamic ritual in which they were remembering the, the murder of a, a, a leader of Islam at, at the beginning, and they would lacerate their bald heads uh, their shaved heads and, and beat themselves at that point. It's the only time, he said, I ever saw men use that because it was considered such a, uh, an intense expression of agony and pain. And there's only one other time in the Gospels, and it's in Luke, and it's when people were leaving the cross after seeing the death of Christ and the darkening of the sky, and they left, it says, beating their chests. So this is a sign of the most intense pain, usually associated with grief, but now associated with the pain of one's own sin. And the thought is, the beat upon the heart is to say, as uh, an early Jewish, Jewish commentary says, it's as though to say, all is there. In other words, the heart is the source. The heart is the source of my pain. You see, it's not what's out there that's making me do things. It's the same kind of statement as you hear in Jesus when he says, it's out of the heart that murders and adulteries flow. It's out of the heart that it comes. And it's fascinating this turnaround because... When the Pharisee said extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector, he's really the one he's talking about the whole time because tax collectors were extortioners and they were, uh, they were always called that. They were called extortioners and unjust, extortioners and swindlers. It's almost as though he's throwing in the adulterers just to say, he's probably an adulterer too, you know, that kind of idea. And he gives as the example of all these things like, like this tax collector, for instance. So that kind of dumping on this man, and yet here is this man uh, who is painfully aware of his own sin. And so the Pharisee should have been of his own sin, even his sin uh, of pride. 
And so beating the very source of all evil thoughts as the seat of personal life and sin. And then this word, have mercy, we need to dissect it a little bit. A bit later in chapter 18, in verse 38, you can see the... uh, Blind men cry out and say, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's the regular word for mercy. But this is not the regular word for mercy. In fact, in the light of this probably being the time of the afternoon sacrifice, possibly the morning, but the time of this, maybe this afternoon sacrifice, and and the offering up of this lamb, the killing of this lamb, and the offering up of this lamb on the altar... It's interesting that he uses the very word, Lord, atone, make atonement for me. This is the word, for instance, in Hebrews 2.17, where it says that he, Jesus, might be a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or as the NIV has it, that he might make atonement for God's people, to turn aside God's wrath by making atonement. That's the word used. And so it seems that he's making this prayer in direct reference to the lamb that is being offered. The, the related word is referred to in Leviticus 25.9 is that yearly day of atonement that the Israelites uh, celebrated the, the great day when the sins of Israel were atoned for in the great offering in Leviticus 16. And all the way through Leviticus and Numbers, this related word is used uh, in terms of the sacrifices to make atonement. And if we had time, we could go on with other passages in the New Testament that refer to it. But the point is then that the lamb is sacrificed And the tax collector is striking his chest and crying out in repentance. And he is saying in a sense, in effect, Lord, let it be for me. Make an atonement for me, a sinner, aware of his own sin, no merit of his own. This great dramatic atonement sacrifice might apply to him. And it's as though Jesus says in the last phrase, it was applied to him. The atonement was applied to him. He went away as a righteous man, as a man counted among God's people, as a man who had the favor of God and intimacy and fellowship with God. You see that word exaltation when it ends in verse, uh, at the end of verse 14, to be exalted. This is God alone is exalted and He alone can exalt man, but it means that He exalts man to draw man close to Himself. It's not that He's exalted in relationship to the Pharisee. That's not the point. He's not exalted in relationship to other people. It's talking about His intimacy with God. He's elevated in relation to God, brought into fellowship. It's the honor of society with God, acceptance and favor and communion, friendship with God. It's almost the same as saying He was redeemed and delivered and brought into fellowship with God. That's the sense of exalted here. The one who is broken and helpless and says, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that humility, there is exaltation. That is, then and only then 
are we received into intimacy with God and exalted into friendship with Him. And so, no surprise is it, Isaiah 57, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, says this, the one whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And you see, that's the sense when Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, he's basically, it means, I tell you, as strange as it may appear, this man rather than the other went away among the righteous of God. Eremaeus, uh, a great, not-so-conservative commentator at times, but he says this, Our passage shows that the Pauline doctrine of justification, and we read about that earlier, it has its roots in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus proclaims that the right that righteousness is a gift of God made possible by means of the atonement sacrifice, which is received by those who in humility approach as sinners, trusting in God's grace and not their own righteousness. And I close by a couple of words because the, the, the parable opens with this, trusting in themselves treating others with contempt. That's really an emphasis of the parable, isn't it? That's the emphasis of his prayer. I'm not like, I'm not like this man. Holding them in contempt, staying away from them. It was the common uh, criticism of righteous men of this kind of leadership. I want to remind you that those who are hurt by others or have been hurt can end up being the most self-righteous people of all. Because number one, you focus on your own hurt, not your own sin. I'm not talking about the sin of you brought the hurt on yourself or, or that you're being punished by God through that person's hurt, but the sin of how you have reacted to that hurt. We tend to think you deserve so much because you've been hurt and you're offended at the idea that you've not responded to your hurt in faith and dependence on a gracious God in love to others. The more serious problem that any of us has is not what has been done to us, but what we have done to God. And interestingly, that that it makes us stand with the Pharisee in thinking, I don't need forgiveness. I don't need forgiveness. I've had my hurt. And in a paradoxical, hateful way from the enemy's standpoint, it cuts us off from the mercy of God. And only that mercy, only receiving forgiveness, can we begin to be cleansed of our hurt and bitterness and fears and hardness. And then a second thing happens. When we've been hurt... We look for others to hurt us and we find fault so we can constantly excuse ourselves and keep our distance from people. And so we need to find fault to assure ourselves that we're okay. We need to find fault to keep people at arm's length. And the sadness is, of course, we need their love and fellowship. We're desperate for it. But we push people away by our judging and our fault finding 
And I tell you, there's enough in my life or anybody here, if you want to find fault, okay, you can do it. You, know? you can find enough reason to reject. But you see, this is born out of emptiness and fear and desperation and a painful pride. Forgiveness through the work of Christ is the foundation of our fellowship. And as we become like the tax gatherer, we stop judging one another and we begin to offer one another the same love and forgiveness that we ourselves have experienced. And if this prayer of humility and penitence and tears, acknowledging one's sinfulness is a delight to God, how can a minister say, I never mentioned the word sin? And Jesus says this is the heart of experiencing fellowship with God. The heart of experiencing fellowship with God is to discover Him to be the gracious God toward sinners. It's a great encouragement. If you feel your sins, come to Him. Rush to Him. Don't be turned away. Can you imagine a doctor who's seen about three or four patients and he come, suddenly just burst into his, his waiting room and there are like 30 people in there. He says, I'm looking for some people who aren't sick. All I've had this morning is sick people. You know, and they're kind of looking around because that's the very reason you come to the doctor. And yet, and yet, that's what we do with God. Yeah, but I'm such a sinner. I'm so lost. I'm so poor. You don't know how black and dark my heart. He's not here to fix righteous people as if there were any. That's why he came. He came for you. Come without any money. Come just as you are. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you who commended this prayer, you are now sitting at the right hand of God to receive sinners. We thank you, Lord, that you call all of us to come, even as this man, simply to cry out, offering nothing of our own righteousness. You will forgive us. You will cleanse us through what you've done on the cross, dying in the place of sinners. Lord, there is no other hope but your atonement, no other hope, the true Lamb slain for sinners, bearing their wrath and their punishment. And there and there alone can we receive forgiveness. Lord, may this pulsate within our lives. May it sweeten how we deal with our own wives and husbands and children and parents and friends. Lord, may it cause us to show others mercy as we broken people have received mercy. Bless us, Lord, that the light of Jesus Christ will shine forth from this congregation in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. 
Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace. 